Well, good evening and welcome to church. It's good to be together tonight. My name's Lachlan. I get the privilege of helping us think a bit more into what we've just heard from the book of Hebrews. Uh, how about I pray as we do that together? Father, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for all that you've given us so far this day. And thank you for the people around us. That you've gathered us here tonight so that we might sit under your word and hear what you have to say to us. Uh, you know each of our names. You know what's going on in our lives You know us even better than we know ourselves. So please, tonight, would you speak to each one of us? Make your truth clear to us, that we might leave this place better equipped to honour you with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to start tonight by going back in time. We're going back to 2002. We're at the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, uh, and the event is the 1,000 metre speed skating final. Enjoy. It's a beautiful moment in world sporting history, isn't it? Uh, I remember watching that live because it was an Aussie that won. That's actually Australia's first gold medal in the Winter Olympics. Uh, what a way to win it. And, and I love that for the whole first minute, you're like, why are we watching this? What is going on? Um, it, what a tragedy for those other competitors, you know? They'd worked so hard, they'd trained so much, they were looking so good, and just before they reached the finish line, just before they got to gold medal glory, uh, they threw it away. It was wasted, all that training gone to no avail. Uh, Friends, tonight as we come to God's Word, God is warning us that we as Christians could end up just like those competitors. We find ourselves as Christians on the edge of this thing that's called God's rest. We're so close to entering it, but there's a danger. We might fall. We might not make it. We might end up devastated, having missed out on the glory that God has in store for us. And so in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, God warns us so that we might 
do the hard work to battle unbelief by considering Christ so that we can enter into His rest. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, you don't yet trust Jesus, you're not even sure what that means to trust Jesus, well, tonight, listen in and hear, try to pick up what God has in store for you, if you do respond to who Jesus is and do say, yeah, I do believe that Jesus is the King that He claimed to be. Try to listen in and see the future that God has on offer and try to hear how you can join us in looking forward to that future together. But open up in your Bibles, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, it'll be worth having that open in front of you. We're tackling a longer passage tonight, so you can follow on and make sure that I'm saying what's true, not making stuff up that's not in the Bible. The Bible's the authority, not me, so open that up. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. There's the first imperative for us tonight, the first thing that we're told to do, consider Jesus. Notice that thinking about Jesus, that's not something you only do when you start out as a Christian and then you move on to thinking about bigger and better things, more exciting things. Uh, thinking about Jesus is for all the time as a Christian. So Hebrews is addressed here to Christians, to these people who trust in Jesus, those who, verse 1 there, they are already holy brothers. That's what we saw last week, remember? Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're those who have been welcomed into God's family. In verse 1, it's those people who are companions in a heavenly calling. So, thinking about Jesus is something you do day by day, all the time of your Christian life. And we are those who are companions in a heavenly calling. This heavenly calling, it kind of runs in two directions. God has called to us from heaven and He's called us, inviting us into heaven. God has sent out this invitation inviting us not to like the Philadelphia cream cheese, fluffy white clouds with halos and white gowns, that's not heaven, heaven's way better than that. God's inviting us to heaven which is His place, the place where He rules with justice and peace all the time, where He's showering His kindness and goodness upon all the people that are there. It's as we wait for that kind of perfect new creation that we call to consider Jesus. Verse 1 continues, we are to consider Jesus, who is the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed Him, just as Moses was in all God's household. What are we to consider about Jesus? Well, Jesus is an Apostle for us. He's one who was sent to us, that's what Apostle means, a sent one. And Jesus came to us with God's Word. Indeed, He was God's Word to us, as we saw back in chapter 1. Jesus came, a message-bearer more impressive than the angels. That's what we've seen so far in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews. And Jesus is also there, our High Priest, the one who deals with our sin, who makes a way for us to approach God. That's the theme that Hebrews will pick up from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 10. So, keep coming back in the coming weeks as we press into what it means for Jesus to be our High Priest. But notice the main thing that we're to consider about Jesus here in chapter 3, it's His faithfulness. Jesus is faithful just as Moses was faithful. Now, Moses, he was a one-of-a-kind guy in his day. He was the man who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he was a mouthpiece for God. He spoke on God's behalf to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He was instrumental in all those plagues. They've made it into great movies these days. Moses was the one who took God's word to Pharaoh. He was also the mouthpiece of God for the people of Israel. 
He spoke to them. He brought them God's law, all the behaviors that would unify Israel as a nation. Other prophets, they had dreams and visions, but with Moses, God spoke face to face. Moses was the prophet of Israel. He was faithful to his task of speaking on God's behalf. So when we compare Jesus to Moses, that's really saying something. Moses is a special guy. But they're not to take anything away from Moses. Hebrews 3 here is saying Jesus is even better. Look at verse 3. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honour than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Consider that. Jesus is to God's people like a builder is to a house. So, Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus is the builder of God's house. Moses is just a part of the house. Now, sure, he's an important part, he's a one-of-a-kind part, the house might have fallen down without him, but Jesus built Moses. It's an interesting little side claim here of Jesus being God. It says that God is the builder of everything. But when the writer here is talking about God, he's clearly referring to Jesus as the builder of the house, he's just said that. Jesus is the one who built everything. And as that comparison goes on in verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. Notice we've transitioned here, we're not talking about a house anymore, but the household. We've moved from talking about the building to the people. And the comparison, Moses was a servant in the household of God, Jesus is a son over the household of God. Quite different positions, a son and a servant. The son, by inheritance, actually owns the house. He's the one who is lord over the house, who provides for those in the house out of his own wealth, the wealth of the family. Whereas the servants, they don't own anything that's in the house. They follow the word of the owner and obey what they're told. And they're provided for by the owner. So Jesus is the owner, the ruler and the provider of God's household where Moses was just a servant. Remember in these contrasts, what's primarily on view is Jesus' faithfulness. We're to consider Christ, the faithful maker, owner, ruler and provider of God's household. And where the rubber hits the road for us in this is there in verse 6. We are that household. The church of Jesus Christ is God's household today. That means that Jesus is tonight our maker, our faithful owner, our faithful ruler, and our faithful provider. That's a good thing to have one who is as good and kind as Jesus, as true and faithful as Jesus, being the one who is ruling over us, providing for us. But notice where verse 6 goes. There's a condition placed on this identity as God's household. If. We are God's house if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. This language of courage and confidence, it's kind of a language of boasting. Being so confident about something that you will boast about it. And what's this hope that our courage and confidence and boasting are in? Well, our hope is that heavenly calling that we saw back in verse 1. God has 
invited us to join Him in glory in heaven. That's some invitation. Uh, if I ever get invited to a schmick party with all the VIPs, it's never happened to me so far. Maybe you are a VIP here tonight and you want to invite me to one of those parties at the clubs that you've got to be a special person to get into. Um, I'd be boasting about that. I'd be like, check out my ticket. I, I've got the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I'm invited. I'm going. This is awesome. Uh, that's what we've been invited to heaven with God. That's an invitation to be confident and boasting in. Why can we be confident about it though? It's not a confidence that rests in ourselves. See, tonight in this room, there are sinners of every kind. There are sexual sinners, lying sinners, stealing sinners, grumbling sinners. That's just me. There are sinners of all kinds in this room. The hope of our heavenly invitation, that doesn't hang on our goodness. If it did, then we would be hopeless. Our hope and our confidence hang entirely on Jesus. That's why Hebrews here is calling us to consider Him, to see His faithfulness as an apostle, to see that He faithfully has brought God's promise of salvation to us. He wasn't lying when He said that to see His faithfulness as our High Priest, that He really has dealt with our sin. He faithfully took it to the cross so that sin no longer stands against us, no longer hangs over our head. We need to consider Jesus, for our confidence and our boasting are in Him. So that's why the rest of chapter 3 goes on and it warns us very strongly of the danger of unbelief. So the opposite of holding our confidence is falling into unbelief, losing our trust that Jesus really can and will take us to heaven. If we lose our trust in Jesus like that, then we'll be like those Olympic skaters who are falling over and clutching our bum in pain because we know that we've stuffed it. Notice where Hebrews 3 verse 7 goes. Therefore, that is, given this condition of clinging to Christ, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my anchor, they will not enter my rest. History shows us the peril of unbelief. I'm not great at learning from history, but I'm being called to here tonight in God's Word. We're meant to learn from the mistakes of those in the past. Here, we're being taken back to Israel's past, to this time of rebellion, of testing in the wilderness. Some of you may be familiar with the story. We, we have Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, captives there, uh, put up under back-breaking work. They were making bricks. Life was not good for them. God saw them in slavery and and saved them out of there through Moses, as we've already talked about. He saved them out of Egypt and He was leading them towards this promised land that was going to be amazing. It was a land described as oozing with milk and honey. It's a nice word, oozing, just kind of pouring out with these sweet and rich substances. It's flowing. It was going to be a great land. And Israel's there walking from Egypt towards this promised land and they got so close. They got to the River Jordan, which was all they had to cross to get in. But they sent some spies across first. 
Seemed like a good idea. Let's check out this land, see what it's like in there. Because there were other people already living there. The spies went in and saw the land and it was a good land. It really was flowing with milk and honey. It was going to give them everything good that they needed. But they also saw the people living in that land. And they were big people, giants, muscly guys. And, and these Israelites, they thought, we can't defeat them. We can't beat them and kick them out of their land to take this promised land that God has offered for us. If we try to go up in war against these people, we'll just lose. Now, they had God's word. God had promised to take them into this land. So, the big problem for them there was unbelief. Where they should have trusted God that He would keep His word and give them this land, they failed to trust God. They didn't think He could actually keep His word to them. They thought that they would die in this battle. And so... They said to God, if only we died back in Egypt, if only we fell in the wilderness, rather than dying up against these enemies who will take our children and our wives and deal with them in ways that we don't want them to. They said to God, we don't trust you, we want to die now. And God gave them what they asked for. That whole generation that had come out of Egypt, they fell dead in the wilderness. And they had to wait 40 years before the next generation would come along, the kids who God would take into that promised land. Now, friends, we are in that same kind of middle space. That's what Hebrews is presenting for us tonight. We as Christians are those who have received this promise of salvation. We have, through Jesus' death and resurrection, been saved from sin. And we're on our way towards this citizenship in heaven, this heavenly rest that we'll hear a bit more about soon. But we're in this middle space between salvation and entry into that glory and there's a real danger that we might not make it. We're not yet in the presence of God, we're not yet there in heaven, and it's possible for us to miss out on getting there. That's why the warning comes in chapter 3, verse 12. Watch out, brothers. Watch out, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Battle against unbelief. It was unbelief that meant Israel didn't get into the promised land in that first generation. It's the same danger for us. Keep a watchful eye for those moments of testing and trial when you're tempted to think, God couldn't possibly come through for me now. In particular, verse 13 warns us against being hardened by sin's deception. Sin whispers through the desires of our flesh through the rationalizations of our mind. Sin whispers lies. You, you won't have enough money if you don't take that cash-only job so that you don't have to pay tax. Sin says, you won't get peace of mind unless you share that juicy bit of gossip that's rolling around your head. You need to share that with someone. Sin whispers, you won't have a chance in the future if you don't cheat on this test. Sin says, you'll only be liked and noticed if you dress provocatively. Sin suggests you'll, you'll lose that one person who seems to care for you if you don't compromise your sexual standards. Sin says, you won't have job security if you speak up about those dishonest practices at work. Sin mutters that only a, only a fool would go on looking weak instead of getting some kind of revenge. Each one of those statements is a lie. 
Every one of them questions the goodness of God and His ability to provide for us as His household. It questions that God cares for us, that He knows what is best. The sin in our hearts that always suggests to us that there is something more valuable to cling to than Jesus. Every action of sin is at its heart an outflow of unbelief in God. This truth hit home to me when I was a bit younger and uh, I'd been driving for a little while and, um, you know, I liked to speed in my car when I drove. And someone brought up a similar point to this, that sin flows out of unbelief and it really hit home that, yeah, the reason I was speeding in my car was because I didn't trust something that God had said. Now, let's just establish, first of all, that speeding is sinful. You know, God tells us that we should obey the laws of the land insofar as they don't compromise our honouring of Jesus. So, it is sinful to speed, like breaking any law of the land. Uh, So, speeding is sinful. And it caused me to pause and and think, well, what am I believing when I speed? What What is the lie of sin that I'm believing? Or what is it that I'm not believing about God? And I started to realize that um, the cause for my speeding was me believing that if I didn't speed, I wouldn't get to the place I needed to get to at the right time. Maybe by getting there late, people would look down on me and and I'd lose my reputation for being punctual. Um, Maybe if I didn't get there on time, I was worried that I might actually let people down. I I thought it might come out of a good godly place in my heart. Uh, But I realized that the truth is God will get me to the places I need to be at the right time. That might mean that sometimes I'm late. If, if speeding would be the only way to get me there on time, well, I shouldn't speed. I should honour God and trust God. If that means I get somewhere five minutes late, well, then I have to own my failure to plan my time well and apologise to the person that I'm late for. That's going to be hard, but I need to trust God. He'll get me where I need to at the right time. Otherwise, He would have said it's okay for me to speed. Now, you see, there's like a little trivial example of something that not many of us would consider a big sin. Speeding is not as big as murder. Um, But as you start to see the way that sin in this area of speeding is a manifestation of unbelief in God, well, that flows out into all areas of sin. And it can actually be helpful to ask that question, what am I not believing about God? What's the truth that I'm not trusting God in, in this act of sin? Every sin is an act of unbelief an act of distrusting God. And so, we find ourselves often caught in our daily lives between these two competing words. Is God's Word, quoted for us there in Hebrews 3 verse 7, today, if you hear His voice, we have God's Word coming to us. On the other side, we have sin's Word. It's deceitful lies that are so enticing. At each small step where we choose to believe sin's promise, rather than God's promise, we step closer and closer to disbelieving God altogether. We start to drift away from Jesus like a boat that has lost its anchor and is just floating along on the current. We can end up in a place where we'd actually rather not enter into God's heavenly city. We'd rather stay in a world of sin. We'd rather sin's temporary pleasures than the eternal pleasures that God has in store for us. We need to remember at that point the Israelites. God gave them what they asked for. If we get to a point where we would prefer sin's temporary pleasures than God's eternal pleasures, God will give us what we ask for. Don't let that happen to you. 
How can we battle against this unbelief? Well, Hebrews 3 verse 13 shows us one great resource that God in His grace, in His kindness has given to us. That God has given us one another to help in this fight. Have a look at Hebrews 3 verse 13. But encourage each other daily, while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Our eternal security is a group project, something that we have to work on together. The word encourage there, it's the word of the confident, heartening general leading his troops into battle, rallying them with that final war cry to get them across the line. It's the word of the coach who gets the team together before that uh, final quarter, rallying them so that they go out there and put in their all to win. Uh, The book of Hebrews as a whole actually calls itself a word of exhortation, using this same word for encourage. So, there's a way in which we can see the whole book of Hebrews as an example of the way that we're meant to talk to one another, to encourage one another, to bring these words of danger, these warnings of the danger that awaits. And alongside that, to bring the promises of God and remind one another of those promises. And all the while throughout that, magnifying how great Jesus is, holding Him before one another's eyes so that we see Him clearly. That's what it is to encourage one another. And that's not something that's just up to Rowan and I to do for you, uh, not even just your connect group leaders to do for you. This is something we need to be doing for one another. We need to be the church for each other. So there is a subtle danger that uh, even sometimes I find myself falling into of treating church like a performance. I come, I sit in my nice comfy tiered seating, I watch, I, I get something out of it and then I leave. Might throw a couple of dollars in to show my appreciation of what's happened, but it, it's just a performance to us. That's not what church is. Church is a household, as we've already seen. We're God's household. We're a family that actually has each other's back. We're a community that encourages one another to keep considering Jesus. When you get that right idea of what church is, it starts to take something quite significant to miss coming to church one week or miss Connect Group. Um, An example of this, I know many of you are coming up to exams soon. Uh, When it comes to exam time, I'm always taken back in my mind to the words of my parents. Um, My parents, when it came to exam time, they were pretty, I don't know, they they would say, no, you can't go to church. You need to get a good night's sleep before an exam on Monday. And I'd have the words of my youth group leader on the other hand going, no, come to church. Church is more important. During those exam times, I don't know, I struggled between those two words because I respected both people who were giving me the wisdom here. But as time has gone on and as I put into practice what I thought, I realised that no, the youth group leader had it right. There is actually no better way to prepare for an exam than to come to church and remind myself that an exam result is not eternal. An exam result will come and go and, and fade, but God's Word will last forever. And that coming to church and being encouraged to consider Christ, that's actually going to keep me firm till that final day going to remind me of what is truly significant. Now, there's just one example of things that might be coming up for you, but as you get that right understanding of what church is, that this isn't a performance, we're actually gathering as a community, as a family, to encourage one another. That starts to shape the way you think about attending church. We are a great resource that God has given us to help us battle against unbelief, as we encourage one another. And notice this in verse 13, we're actually to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. 
So the challenge for us tonight is, well, how will you do this tomorrow? Who will you encourage tomorrow so that they are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness? And when it comes to Tuesday, well, who will you remind of God's promises on Tuesday? Who will you warn about a specific lie of sin on Wednesday? The fact that sin is deceitful really heightens this need that we have for others to show it to us. It's really easy for us to rationalise our behaviour, to think that we're trusting Jesus when we're in fact hardening our heart to His voice. I think back to a time a few years ago when a young guy I was at church with took me out for a coffee and sat me down um, and he brought to my attention some things that I'd been saying in meetings. Now, I thought that my heart was in the right place. I thought that I was trying to lead these meetings in a way that would get us towards the best result for church. But this friend hit the nail on the head and he questioned me and said, I I think it's actually coming from a place of pride, a place of arrogance. And as I thought about that, I went, no, you're right. Uh, I'd been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I hadn't seen the sin that was there and I needed someone to show that up for me. Now, that took a bit of courage on this guy. He was younger than me. It, It took us having spent some time together, building that trust so that he knew that I would take this well when he spoke the truth to me in love. But this is what it looks like for us to be this community who encourages one another so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Are you giving that kind of time to the relationships amongst church, building those kind of relationships where you're willing to speak the truth in love to others and you're willing to have that spoken back to you as well? Will we take this responsibility for one another? Will we battle unbelief together daily? We need each other. I need you. Let's be the church for one another. Now, why is it worth fighting this battle that Hebrews 3 is calling us to? Well, Hebrews 4 encourages us, look ahead to the future. Here's what's at stake. Here's what is in store. God's rest remains. Have a look at Hebrews 4 verse 1. Therefore, while the promise to enter His rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. There is still today a promise of entering God's rest. Uh, The Israelites who came out of Egypt, they were meant to find rest in this good promised land. But as we've seen already, Hebrews 4 verse 2 summarizes, we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. They didn't make it because of their unbelief. So verse 3, we who have believed entered that rest belief, trust in Jesus is the entry fee, but what is this rest? Is it that promised land in Palestine and Israel that we should be trying to get back to because it's still oozing with milk and honey? No, that's what Hebrews 4 goes on to show us. It actually opens us to see that even the promised land for Israel was not meant to be the ultimate rest. Hebrews 4 shows us that God has been at rest since the seventh day of creation. This is actually God's eternal rest that is in store for us. Israel, the promised land there, was just meant to be a picture pointing us towards the ultimate rest that God has in store. And so the argument of Hebrews flows out that if it was the promised land, well then when Joshua went into it, they would have found rest. Joshua was the guy who followed on Moses and took that next generation into the land. But no, even after that happened, 400 years later, David could write this psalm saying, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's still this promise of entering God's rest 400 years after Israel's in the land. 
So it wasn't the land, but it was this picture of God's eternal rest. Uh, God, in, in terms of giving people a picture of this rest, He gave them a picture of the Sabbath. This one day a week where they could down tools and enjoy creation. Now, for Jews today, they don't get to enjoy the Sabbath too much. They've, they've filled it up with all kinds of human rules that just encroach on actually resting on the Sabbath. Um, Christians, I think, got to a, a similar point. Come 20 years ago, lots of Christians were still treating Sunday as a regular day of rest, but it, it kind of got filled up with all these human rules that stopped it from being enjoyed as rest. It was about following the rules rather than stopping and resting. But the principle that comes behind uh, Sabbath, well, it's a principle of you've got six days to work and, and build things in creation. You've got six days to create using all the energy that God has given you. And then one day a week, you just down tools and enjoy what has been created. You've got six days of becoming and then one day of just being. That's the kind of rest that God's inviting us into. Enjoying and being satisfied in His good creation for all eternity. That's a pretty beautiful picture. You know that, those moments of rest that we get where you, you get home after a long day at work, sit down in the couch, rest. Or you hit submit on that assignment at 2am in the morning and fall into bed. Rest. It's a nice moment. It's that kind of rest, but even better as we, we get to the end of a hard life, working and toiling, and we enter a creation that's no longer hard to live in. A creation where there's no longer thorns and thistles, where work is a joy. It's a creation where we can rest and enjoy what God has made. I do wonder if we struggle to look forward to that because we do have lives that are so busy. With technology, it just kind of sucks at us all the time and yeah, we're often up until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. And that's not good and restful. And we struggle to take those days where we just switch off from everything. Now, for some people, that might make us look forward more to rest because we're so busy all the time and we just can't wait for it to stop. But there's something about having that regular taste of what is to come that builds your taste buds up so that you long for it even more. I wonder if there's a time for us to get better at resting regularly, at taking that one day a week where we pause to reflect on what God has made, to enjoy Him and His creation. It's this future rest, though, that God has in store for us. It's this future rest of joining Him in glory that we might miss out on. And so verse 11 of chapter 4 calls us to action again. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. There is a real danger of missing out on this rest. There's a danger for those who have started out on the Christian life that we might fall short of the finish line. For you guys who are baptized today, don't think that job's done now. You're now started out or you've been started out for some time now as soon as you put your trust in Jesus. But that trust in Jesus has to continue day by day. If in five years' time you stop trusting in Jesus, you can't look back to baptism and go, okay, I'm in. No, day by day, trust in Jesus. Hear His Word. How, how do we avoid being like those skaters that fell before the finish line? We, we already saw one resource, God has given us one another. The end of chapter 4 gives us another key resource. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword, 
penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is our only hope. The word of God, which we have available for us in the Bible, as God speaks to us there, it penetrates to the deepest place in our lives and assesses what's there. Is it good? Is it bad? The good news of God's promises, the warnings of His judgment, they're sharp enough and living enough and effective enough to penetrate to the bottom of my heart and show me that the lies of sin are indeed lies. What rescues me from sin's deception is the Word of God, as I come to that in the Bible. So are you coming to the Bible each day with that kind of attitude, with your eyes open to to see the lies of sin that you've been believing? Are you opening up the Bible and letting it penetrate, letting it actually cut and convict you of sin? And when that happens, are you hearing the voice of God or are you hardening your heart against it? Are you taking that word of conviction and acting on it and cutting the sin out of your life, stopping believing that lie? Or are you hearing it and hardening your heart against it? We've come a long way tonight, so let me try to tie all of this together. We as Christians share in the heavenly calling that God has called to us from heaven. He's invited us into His eternal heavenly rest. And we can be confident of entering that rest because the one who has told us about it, Jesus, He is faithful. But tomorrow, or even later tonight, sin will get into you. It will try to undermine your confidence in Jesus. It will attempt to get you to second-guess His faithfulness. It might be first in something small, speeding on your way home from church. It might be as you stay up later and later tonight that You get tempted to distrust what God has to say about sexual satisfaction and look at things on the internet that you shouldn't. That could happen even tonight. So be on your guard and don't harden your heart against God's Word. God has given us His piercing, living Word that will show up sin's lies. Open that up tomorrow. Get your Bible off the shelf and open it up. Hear what God has to say. And He's given us one another as well a living community who can encourage one another daily, who can speak God's words into one another's lives, who can point one another to how magnificent Jesus is so that we keep considering Christ and clinging to Him. Rest remains, so battle unbelief by considering Christ. Let me pray that we would do just that.